This week's episode is brought to you by the Communicore Weekly Goat Line. Call and leave us a wonderful send-off message or an angst-filled send-off message to play during our final show, which is approaching rapidly. Call us at 424-785-GOAT. Welcome to Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show and home of the world's first pair of independently born identical twins. I'm George. And I'm Jeff. And, I mean, it's taken almost five years, but now we're finally going to tackle a topic that people have been asking us to tackle for a very, very, very long time. Well, we already talked about our origin story a while ago. Oh, that's right. We did make a whole musical. Well, show yeah. over, everyone. <laughs> Have a good well, that week. Was, that was an easy one. All right, great. Well, <laughs> All right, let's pack it in, folks. <laughs> it's time for Disney History. There are plenty of Disney projects that we collectively, as fans, have read about over the years and basically fawned over, but ultimately, they never came to fruition. But in terms of, like, scope and ambition, and certainly fan lamenting, the biggest of them all has to be Disney's original plan to expand Disneyland into a multi-hotel, multi-park resort, including the infamous Westcott Center. Hmm. So before we get into the particulars uh, about the hows, the whys, and the whats about the project, let's take a step back in time to see where the Walt Disney Company was at that time before Westcott came about. As most of you already know, Frank Wells and our BFF, Michael Eisner, took over the Walt Disney Company in 1984. The two of them saved the company in a lot of ways, especially from the hands of greedy investors who wanted to merge the company with other companies, thereby getting rid of the Walt Disney Company as we know it. But thankfully, they were able to stop all of that. Hooray! Um, so, once in charge, both of them went on a pretty aggressive campaign to expand both the Disneyland Resort and the Walt Disney World Resort in Florida. And, of course, since Walt Disney World has more of an international destination feel to it, a lot of effort went into expanding that resort first. You know, rooms were added to existing hotels, um, many new resorts were added, such as the Grand Floridian, Caribbean Beach, Swan and Dolphin, and many more. So, uh, while it was pretty impressive uh, with what they were doing at Walt Disney World, things were looking a little different over at Disneyland. Uh, of course, the, the end game was still the same. Expand the resort, make it a multi-day experience, and help keep the guests in Disney parks, Disney hotels, Disney shops, and Disney restaurants. I mean, makes sense, right? Of course, of course. So, there was an immediate and pretty big obstacle waiting for them, however. Uh, during the construction of Disneyland, Walt Disney had sunk pretty much every penny he had just getting into the park built. And he desperately wanted a hotel nearby that would meet his high standards and bear the Disney name. So, he struck a deal with Hollywood producer uh, Jock, uh, excuse me, Jack, rather, not only offering um, 60 acres of land, but exclusive rights to the Disney name for any hotels built in California for 99 years. 
And after Disneyland's success, Walt, and uh, eventually the company itself, periodically asked Rather if he would be interested in selling the land. I can't imagine this. Hey, Jack, want to give us the land? Sell it to us, huh? Nope. Huh? See and you Tuesday, Walt. What he always said. <laughs> so, uh, sadly, Rather passed away in 1984. And just three years later, the Rather Corporation was on the decline. Eisner saw his chance. So by 1988, through a lot of corporate finagling, a little trickery, and uh, actually teaming up with another company, and then buying out that said company, uh, Disney actually owned the rights to the Disneyland Hotel. And more importantly, the naming rights for any future Disney properties in California. So at this point, the dream of a multi-day, multi-park vacation destination in California was within their grasp. The issue now was for the Imagineers to actually come up with that concept. And this is where the $3.1 billion plan uh, came to their drawing board. Disney wanted to create the Anaheim Commercial Recreation Area, which would be a special district that would include the 550-acre Disneyland Resort and turn it into a multi-day destination just like Walt Disney World. And what would that commercial recreation district include, George? Oh, I'm glad you asked. Quite a bit, actually. In addition to the expansion, they wanted to improve the public infrastructure. Uh, things like an enhanced sewer system, electrical utilities, and more traversable walkways were all planned. Outside of the theme parks would sit a state-of-the-art 5,000-seat amphitheater called the Disneyland Bowl. To accommodate all the vehicles, three different multi-level parking structures were to be built. But where would these new guests sleep? Well, I'm glad you asked that. Why stay at the Disneyland Hotel when you can stay at the new Disneyland Resort Ooh. Hotel? What was the name of the new Disneyland Resort Hotel gonna be? No, no, that, that was going to be the hotel's name. What? What's on second? Wait, who? He's on first. Uh, you see what we did there, guys? Ah, very good. <laughs> so anyway, like literally, that was going to be the name of one of the hotels. Uh, in fact, it was meant to be the new flagship hotel. In addition, there would also be the Westcott Lake Resort and the Magic Kingdom Hotel. All told, they plan on adding close to 5,000 new hotel rooms on property. Ooh. So the Disneyland Center would connect the resort hotels and the theme parks themselves. Uh, of course, the shopping and dining district would inevitably morph into downtown Disney. However, at the time, it would have surrounded a six-acre lake with room for even more expansion if they so desired. And of course, the crown jewel would have been a brand new theme park called the New Disneyland. No, no, I'm just kidding. What? Called, <laughs> called Westcott Center, inspired in name and in design by Epcot Center at Walt Disney World. The original goal for Westcott Center was to celebrate our cultural diversity and those elements that truly connect us, our humanity, our history, our planet, and our universe. So while Epcot Center in Florida has no real hub to speak of, Westcott uh, would have, but upgraded for the 21st century. It would have been called VenturePort, and this would have been a crossroads that allowed you to visit the three different worlds. Um, the Wonders of Living, the Wonders of Earth, and the Wonders of Space. And then a World Showcase, also known as the Four Corners of the World, would feature regions of the world, uh, but actually, instead of divided countries, it would just like be certain sections of these other regions of the world. So the four realms would be Asia, Europe, the Americas, and Africa. So, yeah, in concept, it does sound a bit like Epcot on the West Coast, and in some ways, yeah, it was. But beyond that, you'll see that it was so much more than that. Westcott was meant to have been the most complex, fully realized theme park in Disney history, by being the world's first truly urban theme park. 
So as in uh, as is the idea in other Disney parks, you wouldn't sit passively by and watch the action. You would become part of a story. The characters and activities would interact with the guests. And while Disney does a great job of doing that already, they would have had that experience, uh, same experience, but turned up to 11. So on top of that, Westcott was to be the first theme park where you could literally spend the night inside the park. Not a Disney hotel <gasps> nearby, but in the park. Ooh. I know, right? I mean, nowadays you can only spend the night when you win a night in one of the dream suites at, you know, Disneyland or Magic Kingdom. So this would have been pretty awesome. Or if you're John Stamos, right? Or you're John Stamos, you can stay wherever you want. Exactly. So to begin your journey inside Westcott, you'd cross over a bridge and under a cascading waterfall until you came to the icon of the park, a 300-foot golden sphere called Space Station Earth. Not new Space Station Earth? Nope, nope. No? Okay. They, they miss opportunities with these uh, naming things. They did. So in 1994, Imagineer Tony Baxter acknowledged that it wouldn't look great from Main Street, so they were constantly evolving its design. But they knew they wanted... Uh, something that symbolized hope that was attractive and that lured you towards it the golden sphere was to sit atop a lush green island and once there you were faced with two choices cake or death no no no, no. <laughs> space station earth or head to the venture port so the venture port as described by baxter was to be a futuristic gateway from which guests embark on magical journeys to the wonders of westcott's theme pavilions so basically just like epcot westcott would have pavilions seven of them to be exact uh in the future world section of the park you'd have like we mentioned before the wonders of living wonders of earth and wonders of space pavilion and on the perimeter would be the four pavilions in the World Showcase, known as the Four Corners of the World, Asia, Europe, Americas, and Africa. And collectively, they make up the Seven Wonders of Westcott. But back to the Venture Port, it would have been like a, a literal way station, uh, leading off in every which direction. You could journey to any of your destinations from there and, and come back to visit another later on. It, it was a central transportation unit for the whole park, uh, sometimes acting as a time machine to allow guests to travel back in time to visit some of the World Showcase sections. It was very much based in science fiction, sort of like a, a bustling space station. So, in a couple of uh, John Horney concept sketches he released a few years ago, it was meant to be a very organic place, meaning, you know, it had to look as if it was built using completely organic materials. So, what if scientists found a way to grow trees into 2x4s and use them for construction? You know, that, that kind of thing. Everything had a very natural, earthy color uh, to it to show how we adapted our environment and are using it to build these buildings now. So fitting in with the Travel Center theme, you would see things such as the monorail entering the Venture Port. You would also see boats, which would also travel around the International Gateway to each country. And had these things called, they had these things called slipper cars. Not sleeper, but slipper. Uh, because they look like slippers heading back into the Venture Port from their destination. All of it added to the feel of being a busy port of call. Also, he had gigantic ducks on the building for some reason, and I don't think anyone really knows why. It's like the penguin from Batman Returns. Like, literally, that's what the ducks look like, the thing he wrote around it. Um, but of course, to make it even more futuristic, because you see this in every futuristic society, um, there was a gigantic video screen on top welcoming everyone to Ventureport, calling out destinations and so on. But in the concept sketch that he released, uh, John showed, uh, it was none other than Michael Eisner on that screen overlooking everything. Yeah, because I can see Michael Eisner looking at the concept art. You know what would look great right here? Me. My face. Yes, me. <laughs> My face. Really big. 
So, not that, that we don't think that's kind of creepy, but anyway, uh, join us next week as we venture out into Westcott to see the pavilions and uh, what the pavilions, what they would have had, and go for a ride on Deck 13. He's a nerd, he's a, nerd. He's a, geek. He's a geek, but we all like to hear him speak. So listen up to the words from his beat. It's George's Book of the Week. This week's book is Star Wars Ahsoka by E.K. Johnston. And I'm reviewing this based on an advanced reader's copy, so there could be some changes from the one that's released later. So this Star Wars book does take place sometime around the end of Star Wars Rebels Season 1. Uh, and it's a really fantastic look at Ahsoka Tana and how she became involved with the early stages of the Rebellion. And as we find out in Star Wars Rebels Season 2, she, Ahsoka, is the operative that's known as Fulcrum that Bail Organa often uses. Uh, but what I really enjoyed about this book is that we get some really deep insight into Ahsoka and how she dealt with the loss of her fellow Jedi and all the clone soldiers that were killed after the execution of Order 66. And she was one of the few Jedi to escape really because the clones she worked with removed their chips. And, you know, they've got some scarring, which is kind of in Rebel Season 2. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm, Easter eggs. So uh, Ahsoka's sort of traveling from planet to planet to find her way. Uh, now that she's been sort of kicked out of the Jedi Order, she left him behind before Order 66 was executed. But she doesn't really have a purpose. And she makes it to a small agricultural moon and tries to fit in with the group and sort of put some roots down a little bit when she realized that the Empire has just come in to take over all the farming operations and grow a crop that sort of destroys the planet but will feed the troopers. So they sort of come in, destroy stuff, and leave. But Ahsoka, through her journey, is also running into some Force-sensitive children, and she you get to see how she's dealing with that. Does she step out? Does she make herself known in order to protect the children? Because we do have the Inquisitors from Rebel Season 1 and 2 that are hunting Force children and Jedi. And they are supposed to kill the Jedi and capture the children. We still don't really know why. But, you know, we'll, we'll get to that later, I hope. <laughs> uh, so... It, 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 as I mentioned, it does offer a great tie-in to Star Wars Rebel Season 2, as well as it answers a lot of questions about what happened to Ahsoka after Order 66 and how she dealt with everything. It even talks about how she acquired the white lightsabers that we see in Rebel Season 2. Anyone who is a fan of the Clone Wars or the Rebels animated series is going to love this book. Uh, it's rare that we get to look inside of the mind of one of the characters from the Rebels show which is wonderful. And Ahsoka is brought to life in a fantastic way, and, and she's imbued with a lot of doubts about herself and the Jedi and the galaxy, especially after Order 66. This book does have a lot more action and uh, a lot less political intrigue than some of the other Star Wars books, but it's still great. I think teens and adults are going to love it, especially if they have an interest in Ahsoka and maybe what had happened. And there's a lot of other fantastic details that I won't go into, because those are spoilers, and we don't like those. Spoiler alert. Not at all. So this week's book, which was really fantastic, and I suggest you get it, is Star Wars Ahsoka by E.K. Johnston. What we liked, what we didn't like, is in the booze! 60-second review! 
So the highly anticipated Star Wars Rebel Season 2 has just been released on Blu-ray, and I sort of mentioned it in the Book of the Week segment. It is a stunning three-disc set that's pretty much a must-have for Star Wars fans, especially fans of Season 1 Rebels, and it's Star Wars, you know? How can you go wrong, really? I mean... Uh, I mean, yeah, I think the show really continues to amaze me and everyone, really, with its pretty in-depth storyline, especially for something that is technically aimed towards kids. Um, I mean, yeah, they do keep it lighthearted from time to time before diving into some pretty dark stuff, making for this, like, really nice balanced mix and a really interesting show. Mm -hmm. You know, both seasons of the show have been an amazing way to bridge episodes two and three you'll notice i left one of the episodes out Mm -hmm. Uh, but bridging episode two and three and four uh to you know answer questions and and just get you ready for what's happening in the next trilogy but and they've given us some characters that are just as amazing uh in my mind as some of the ones we saw from the original star wars trilogy but as jeff mentioned there is enough intrigue and storyline to keep adult Star Wars fans as entertained as the kids. And there is so much included in this season's grouping of shows, especially with the backstories. Yeah, yeah, it was almost like an information overload in a way, but mm. not in a bad way whatsoever. I mean, we had so many returning characters from the Clone Wars series, and it was great, jo- great to catch up with them and see how they evolved since then. And even Ahsoka, I mean, everyone is talking about her reappearance, especially with the book that George just reviewed, you know, what she's become. So it was really cool to see how they brought her into the storyline as this mature adult kind of taking charge, which is way different from what we remember her as. Exactly. Having Ahsoka return, I thought was really cool, as well as the appearance of Two Darths, which does sound like a new sitcom on ABC. My Two Darths. My Two Darths. Sundays at 8. Yeah, no spoilers, though. We don't want to do that. Um, the animation is really fantastic, uh, and the, the voice acting is superb, like it's always been. But still, like with I said with season uh, one of Rebels, the sound effects were awesome because it has that Star Wars feel to it. I was sort of missing with the Clone Wars. They wanted that feel a little bit differently. Yeah. But this sounds like a Star Wars film, which was awesome. Yeah. Very awesome. So as for extras, you know, every episode had their own, you know, look inside Rebels recon bit, um, but it wasn't really the standard fluff per se. There were, you know, some of them were longer, meatier segments. And while they were, they've all been on YouTube since the episodes have come out, uh, but I didn't see all of them, so it was great to have them all in one place. But after a while, they do start to get a tiny bit repetitive. Exactly. And besides the Rebel recon extras, they uh, they had this uh, short uh, from Apprentice to Adversary, which talks about Ahsoka and Vader and how she learns the truth about him. And there was a pretty neat little short, um, uh, The Connecting the Galaxy. Yeah, that was cool. Yeah, talked about some Easter eggs and stuff like that. But, you know, I think Jeff and I were talking off screen, you know, the extras were a nice addition, not as much as they had from the first season. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but you're not really buying this for the extras. You're buying this because you want the storyline, you want the show. It's really worth it. Yeah, yeah. You realize that by saying it, though, like, I know what you're trying to do, but the Force powers don't work over podcasts. I know, I know. I kept waving my hand, and just nothing was happening. I have, it's, you probably just look ridiculous in your, you know, your living room doing that, so. Uh, yeah, well, I, I always do. That's on you, George. That's on you. I know. That's, that's on you. Anyway, regardless, <laughs> Rebel Season 2 was a great way to, like, further connect dots between the episodes, and, uh, you know, it's really worth watching, I think. Yes, yeah, so, so these are the droids you're looking for, and buy three copies. Exactly. Make up for the prequels. Sometimes you might see it, sometimes you don't. Hey, look what 
What's that? It's a five-legged goat. So in the queue for Big Thunder Mountain Railroad at the Magic Kingdom, there is of course a treasure trove of goats hiding around all over the place. So there's this white sign that advertises that the Butterfly Stage Line and where it stops. And it says it stops at Quake City, Thunder Mesa, Fort Concho, and Rainbow Ridge. So Fort Concho and Quake City are references to the film The Apple Dumpling Gang, uh, while Thunder Mesa and Rainbow Ridge are references to the Western River Expedition and Disneyland, respectively. And it also says that the Carrollwood Pacific Railroad Company connects to the stage line, and that the founder is Colonel T.R. Clydesdale. And that's actually the name of David Wayne's character in the Apple Dumpling Gang as well. And David Wayne is not related to the Wayne's brothers. They're separate entities, just as a heads up. Oh, that's pretty cool. Just letting yeah. you know, I know sometimes people get confused. Yeah, yeah they do. And I didn't have a good segue because I started thinking about apple dumplings. Oh, fair enough. I realized I was kind You're of hungry. hungry. Yeah, as always, as always. As per know. usual. Yeah, send food. Um, <laughs> but since we've hit the five-legged goat, it means we are at the time of the show where we announce the winner of our Year of a Million or So Limited Time Cadets Hooray. weekly prize. Yes, we're so excited, and we've got a handful of episodes left. 17. Like 17 chances to win. Wow. So for those of you who do not know how to be part of this contest, just email your name and address, because we have to have your address to mail out the prize, to communicorweekly at gmail.com, and we'll enter you into the weekly prize drawing. Yes, please do. And yes, so this week's prize is a Communicore Weekly prize pack? Yes, sir. I'm assuming? Okay. You, okay. you are correct. Yay. And since we're getting close to Halloween, will it be something scary? Um, Actually, I can probably make that happen. <laughs> yeah, we'll do Play that. Something from the haunts. Anyway, so this week's winner is Lisa. Excuse me. Ooh, almost said the wrong name. You're close. Is, yeah, Liz R. from West Henrietta, New York. Hooray, Liz Yay. or Lise, however you pronounce it. Yeah, that's true. We don't know how. What so are the two? We'll, we'll, we'll tell us. Please tell us. <laughs> yeah. Call the goat line and tell us. And berate us. Yes, and berate us. <laughs> um,. But yeah, so uh, take a photo of yourself with the prize pack so we can put it all over Twitter and Facebook and uh, show our love and appreciation for mm -hmm. all the cadets. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Okay, guys, so thank you so much for watching and listening to another episode of Communicore Weekly. However you get the show, whether you're watching on I uh, excuse me, we're watching on YouTube or through mm -hmm. iTunes, leave us a comment, leave us a rating. We'd love to hear what you think. Yep. And again, you can email us at communicorweekly at gmail.com to say hi or enter the contest. You can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash communicorweekly. And follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm at Imaginerding. He's at Jeff Heimbuck. And of course, give us a call on the Communicore Weekly GOAT line at 424-785-4628 and send us your goodbye messages. I okay, know. so, and you can always visit <laughs> communicorweekly.spreadshirt.com and get some awesome t shirts. And you can still uh, send away for your official cadet membership card and stickers by sending a self addressed stamped envelope to Communicore Weekly, P.O. Box 432, Orange, California, 92856. And don't forget to visit patreon.com slash communicorweekly to find out how you can support the greatest online show. For Jeff Heimbuck, I'm George Taylor. And for George Taylor, I'm Jeff Heimbuck. Thanks so much for listening, guys and gals. We'll see you next time on Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show. <laughs>